Friends, our scripture reading this evening comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 33 33 through verse 9 of chapter 14. If you have a red pew Bible in front of you, you can go to page 900 for that. And this past weekend has been our church's annual missions conference. Each year we take some time to reflect deeply as a church about what it is that Jesus has called us to do and and what kind of people he's called us to be in the world, specifically in our context in Washington, D.C. And we've been privileged to have Reverend Dr. John Dixon with us for the weekend to share some of his thoughts and, and, and give us some of his perspective on how we might live confidently uh, and humbly as, as followers of Jesus in our time and place. John has an eclectic background, uh, hailing from Sydney, Australia. He came to Christ uh, in, in high school and then, and then promptly started a rock band. And from there, he went from making music to studying theology to ancient history to becoming a professor and documentary director and podcaster and author. He has a wide variety of experience and he has a really keen insight and how the message of Jesus makes a difference in our daily lives. Uh, I uh, was particularly touched by some of John's writings personally in, in university. Um, his book, A Doubter's Guide to the Bible, was really transformative for me in how I approached the scriptures. And if you're here and you are having questions about Christianity, we have a, a, a limited number of, of these books, uh, A Doubter's Guide to Jesus. John has this whole series of doubter's guides, and we have uh, some copies available in our Welcome Center out these doors and to the right. And so if you're here and you have questions about Jesus, please take a copy free of charge. If you're here and you are, are walking with somebody who has doubts, please take one and, and offer to, to read it with them. Uh, but John, we are grateful for, for you being here with us to uh, share uh, once more uh, some of your wisdom and insight. But we know that ultimately you have nothing original to say because you have been teaching us what God's word has Uh, what's been in God's word all along. And so let's turn our attention now to that word. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 33. Jesus said, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Um, Let a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Matt, for that intro and the lovely reading of the scriptures. Uh, thank you, Ryan, wherever you are, uh, for having me. Uh, this, this weekend has thoroughly reinforced my, my long-time affection for American Christianity. American Christianity. Um, and, and I say that like in all sincerity, uh, and it's, it's often puzzled Americans when I've said, oh, I'm really fond of American Christianity. Lots of Americans say, really? Yeah, really. Uh, in fact, uh, my two favorite preachers in the world are both Americans. Uh, one's even a Presbyterian. So, you know, I'm, I'm half Presbyterian for sure. Um, but my very first experience of American Christianity was very different. Uh, some years ago now, I uh, arrived in America for my, my first uh, tour, as it were, and I was confronted with a preacher that was the classic TV evangelist. You know the kind. Uh, slick back hair, Pierre Cadan suit, gorgeous southern accent. I was transfixed. And he had a special message uh, the day that I was watching. God is a God of prosperity, he said, and wants to prosper your life. I was a struggling musician at the time, so he had my attention. (laughs) And he said he had a special deal on this particular day, so I was especially lucky. He had what looked to me like a tea towel you wash, you dry the dishes with, but he called it a prayer cloth that he had personally prayed over. And he said, if you put it in your garage, you'd end up with the cars you want, your uh, pantry, you'd always have enough food, in the house, you'd end up with the house of your dreams, um, because God's blessing was on the tea towel, the prayer cloth. And um, yeah, some of you were shaking your head and I was beginning to shake my head at this point. But to prove that the magic worked, he showed a little video clip of his own car collection and house and <laughs> God is a God of prosperity, he said, wants to prosper your life. Now, the interesting thing is I, I had a lovely tour in America and I learned to differentiate between that first experience and other American Christians, you'll be happy to know. Uh, but I was soon home where I was speaking in a little country town called uh, Kula in New South Wales. And I was in the pub and I was due to give a talk in the pub. And my talk was about the love of God. And as soon as I opened my mouth and started to talk about God's love, uh, at the very back in this dark room, <clears throat> this woman yelled out, how can you talk of a God of love when he takes people from our lives? I thanked her, I went on with my talk, but I saw this silhouetted figure walking straight towards stage. and She sat right in the front row and watched me for the rest of the night. Afterwards, I sat down, I had a drink with her. And she explained 
that she had just lost the only people she got along with in her extended family in a terrible uh, collision. And she said, look, I've lived a terrible life and I am sure God is punishing me. And nothing I could say to her. We must have talked an hour. but Nothing I could say could convince her of a God of love. She had the broken life to prove it. God was a tyrant. It was very disorienting. God, the God of prosperity. God, the angry tyrant. Two firmly believed convictions about the Almighty based in real experience. And perhaps less dramatically, the same will be true here for some. Some can't help but project onto God your life experience. Some of you have had terrible life experiences and the way you think of God is in dark tones. And others happily have had joyous experiences and life is going well and when you think about God, you project that happiness onto God and things are lovely. And it raises that awkward question that many people have raised Maybe the whole thing is projection. Maybe it all is just, you know, life experience combined with personality. We project that on to the Almighty. Now, of course, in modern times, the person famous for this idea of theology as projection was Sigmund Freud, the father of the modern psychoanalytic tradition. And Freud said precisely that... uh, Belief in God was ultimately a projection of sort of unfulfilled parental longings. We all grow up with these longings for the parent and and then we're uh, disassociated from them in a way when we grow up, but we project that daddy, mummy in the sky. It's all projection. Now, smart people in Freud's own day said, well, maybe, but what of your atheism? That could also be a projection of your rejection of your overbearing Austrian father. You know, you you want to remove the father figure and so you remove God. So it cuts both ways. But actually, it's much older than um, Freud. People think it's a modern idea where they say our religion's all projection. But actually, it's the pre-Socratic philosopher, the first in history that we can uh, date, uh, Xenophanes, who first said... God must exist, for there must be a mind behind the regularity of the universe, but all religion is projection, he said. He basically argued that while you can know that there is an architect just by looking at a beautiful building, you can't know the architect just by looking at the building. You can posit a composer when you hear a melody, but you can't know the composer. So all religions, Xenophanes said, are projection. Well, with that depressing introduction, the theme of our passage just read is the longing for clarity, the longing for more than projection. The people in conversation with Jesus don't want to rely on experience 
imagination, and even religion. They want clarity. It's a really interesting passage. Those opening lines, verse 33 forward, is the first time where Jesus is really seriously saying to the disciples, now I'm going. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You'll seek me and you won't find me. Um, and, And I've often tried to put myself in the position of the close students of Jesus, the disciples. You've spent three years with this intriguing, remarkable man. And now he says he's going. If you had been saving up theological questions, this is the night to ask them, right? And the way this passage is constructed, that's exactly what happens. One by one, the disciples ask their best questions. First Peter, then Thomas, and then Philip. And actually, we'll see together that there's this increasing intensity to the discourse. The questions get more pointed, and Jesus' answers get more strange or impressive, depending on your perspective. First then, notice Peter asks for clarity about Jesus' destination. Jesus says, I'm going away. And then almost as if Peter doesn't hear that lovely bit about love, (laughs) right, in 34, 5, where Jesus talks about people knowing disciples by love. It's like Peter doesn't hear that. He's just going, what? You're going away? And so we read in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, we read, where I'm going, you cannot Follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter is eager to know the destination and he's sure he can handle it. I imagine he is thinking it's like we're either going to Jerusalem to confront the authorities and the great messianic battle, or maybe we're off to Rome to really confront the empire. I can do it wherever it is. I'll even lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, actually, Peter, you're going to disown me. Three times. And of course, the betrayal of Peter is narrated in chapter 18 of John's Gospel and in the other three biographies we have of Jesus from the first century. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all narrate Peter's denial of Jesus. Peter, the leading apostle, denying Jesus. Just a little sidebar here. This is is one of the indications of truth-telling right at the heart of the Gospels. They are very honest about their heroes. So you've got to remember, when the Gospels were written, Peter was head honcho. And yet all of these Gospels say he denied Jesus at the moment where it really mattered. Extraordinary. But actually more extraordinary than that is the fact that Jesus immediately, having just said, you're going to deny me, reassures Peter reassures them all that there's still a place. Forget that there's a 
new chapter that begins at 14.1. The chapters were only added 500 years ago. They're not original to the text. Jesus simply says, let not your hearts be troubled. Well, I am sure their hearts were troubled when the leading apostle is told you're going to deny me three times real soon. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Such grace. Despite Peter's looming betrayal, And all of them will in their own way flee. Jesus pledges at this moment to welcome them. And if I get across nothing else tonight, I'd just be really happy if this is the only thing you tune in for and then you go to sleep. The welcome and grace and mercy of Jesus in the face of treachery. But that prompts the second question, this time from Thomas, who just heard Jesus say, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, well, not really. Verse five, I want to know the way. I want clarity about the way. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? What is the way? to the place, wherever that is. Jesus' answer is enigmatic. And if you're a long-term Christian, you're so used to this, you miss how bizarre it is. We even make songs about this next line. But it is truly weird. Look at verse six. I mean, no disrespect to the Lord, but this is strange. Jesus said, I am the way. And the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Let's think about this. How can we know the way? I am. If you asked me the way to the little New South Wales country town of Kula, and I said, I am the way to Kula, (laughs) you'd scratch your head and wonder what's really going on here. But what's going on here is that Jesus is claiming not just to be able to point the way, to teach the truth, to pass on the life. He's claiming to be the way and the truth and the life. He is claiming to completely resolve the dilemma of projection speculation. Not just because he can reveal it, but because he is it. That's the claim. And I I know that's sort of confronting. It is one of those uncomfortable moments when our popular image of Jesus as the great ethical teacher crashes into the fact that the great ethical teacher said some crazy things about himself. You know, the one who said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, 
do unto others as you would have them do to you. And all these things that have become proverbial and really the basis of Western ethics, the same person who said all those lovely things also said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father, that's God, except through me. And it gets worse or better, depending on your perspective, because Philip's standing there too. He's heard Peter have a pretty good question. He's heard Thomas have a pretty good question. And Philip, I think out of exasperation, asks the ultimate question. There in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. There's exasperation in those words. It is enough. Like, I'll give up everything. Just will you show us the Father? It's difficult to know what Philip was expecting um, by way of reply because Philip was a Galilean Jew. And all Galilean and Judean Jews knew that their scriptures said no one can see God and live. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's in black and white in Exodus 33. No one shall see God and live. I mean, such is the distance between the holiness and love of God and the darkness and self-absorption of the human heart that no one shall see God and live. So what on earth is Philip asking? Show me God. I think really he's not thinking. (laughs) He's not thinking theologically. He's not in a Bible study. He's, He's asking the final question. I don't even know what I mean, Lord, but will you show me God? Whatever he expected by way of reply, I think there's nothing that prepared him for the actual reply. In verse nine. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Huh, I mean that in itself is ominous. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I regard this as the most extraordinary line in all sacred literature. I have read the Upanishads and the Tripitaka and the Mishnah and the Quran and the Hadith. I used to teach the history of the world religions at Macquarie University. And there is nothing like this. In Christianity alone is it claimed, if you see this person, you have seen God himself. Not at a dream, not in a vision, 
but in history. In a real flesh and blood historical life that you can come and prod and poke. And it really looks like it happened. Jesus is claiming to be the revelation that ends the speculation. It's like the architect has knocked on the door and asked to come in for a cup of tea. Let me try and illustrate the significance of this claim. It's so crucial. Will you right now try and imagine what my father looked like? Be kind. And try and imagine him quite young because I, I lost him um, when I was quite young. So maybe imagine him in his uh, 40s. Now, some of you will have good imaginations. You're doing a bit of speculation. You're looking at this uh, fellow out the front and you, you're sort of doing some back projection. Uh, and then if I asked you on your um, orders of service to take out a pencil and sketch your mental image of my father uh, on the paper, and then I got you to hand it all in and, and I went through them to see which was closest. I'm sure some of the um, speculations would be closer than others. I'm sure some would be Beautiful. Some of you have great artistic skill and, and some of them you know, might not actually look, look like my dad but might look a whole lot better than my dad. And yet, a beautiful, artistic, intelligent guess is still a guess. But I can resolve the issue. I can show you a photo of my father. I'm not sure if that's how you imagined him. Oh, it keeps on popping around. <laughs> Sitting on an Italian beach with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. What does this photo do? It is a disclosure that relegates the guessing. Your guesses might have been fabulous, artistic, worthy of admiration, but this is the real thing. And it's obvious where I'm going. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen God. Through his teachings, healings, interactions, death and resurrection, we are all given front row seats to the greatest show on earth. The architect has entered the world. The composer has stepped off the stage into the audience. And we can all know him. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I will never get used to this idea. 
I marvel at it. But I'm conscious that it is both a challenge and a comfort. I mean, it's clearly a challenge, right? Because it means if this is true, we are not at liberty to make up our own version of God. Yeah? I mean, most Australians, even godless Australians, still believe in the existence of God. Most Americans, overwhelmingly Americans, still believe in the existence of God. But I certainly know we do it in Australia, and I'm pretty sure you do it too. We cherry pick which bits of God we like, which, you know, and, and we project. And um, I have often had conversations with Australians where we talk about God, and they say something like, I prefer to think of God as fill in the blank. And I, and I have to sort of bite my lip. I prefer to think of God as. I mean, you, you just sort of think about that as an expression. It's not logical. We fashion God into our own image, into our own preferences, and how true this was of the unnamed TV evangelist that was my first taste of American Christianity. He was just fashioning a God according to his own preferences. But if God has revealed himself in person, in history, then cherry picking is exposed for what it really is. It's self-flattery. I prefer to think of God as. My favourite preacher, the Presbyterian, Tim Keller, tweeted, and of course caused a storm, these words. If God is real, why do we assume he will perfectly align with our views? If he never challenges our assumptions, we may have a made-up God. That's the challenge. But there's also an amazing comfort in this Christian idea, especially for people like the woman I met in Kula, who thought she'd lived such a terrible life, she was just under judgment. In the very passage, Jesus makes this most lofty claim about himself. We also see him tenderly reassuring the disciples that despite their betrayal, there's a place for them. Pair those two things. If you have seen me, you have seen God. Peter, you will deny me three times, but let your heart not be troubled. There is a place for you. And of course, the very next day, I mean, because this scene is the night before the crucifixion, the very next day, Jesus will be crucified. He said to bear into himself the judgment, the guilt that is mine. At the center of the photo of God, if I can put it like this, is a cross. 
No one may see God and live. It's good theology. Except because of the cross, even fallen people can see God and live eternally. Many of you will know the um, American author Max Licardo and his incredibly successful book, um, No Wonder They Call Him Saviour, in which he tells a story that I want to retell, but in a different way from the way he um, applies it. But, but he says that he knows of a family in Brazil where the daughter, Christina, had always um, spoken about going to Rio, an hour's bus trip away, and going and experiencing the bright lights and excitement that was available. And the mother had always said to Christina, there's no work for a young girl like you except the worst kind of work. But Christina didn't listen, and one morning the mother woke up and Christina had gone, bags packed, gone. She knew exactly what she'd done. The mom apparently caught the next bus to Rio, went through all the places she thought she might see her daughter and didn't find her. And she had this great idea. She went to those um, photo booths where you can get little passport photos in tourist districts of yourself. And she paid for a whole bunch of photos of herself. And then on the back, she wrote a little message to her daughter and then she went round to all the sleazy joints in Rio and stuck this photo everywhere, in the stairwell, bathrooms, and then went home and no doubt prayed her heart out for Christina. It turns out Christina had turned to the most demeaning kind of existence just to make ends meet, ashamed to go home, unsure what her mother would say, and she was walking down the stairwell of one of these places and she noticed one morning this photo of her mum stuck to the wall. I can only imagine the feeling. She took the photo, puzzling over how on earth it got there and she noticed this little message on the back which Max Licato said, just read, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, Please just come home. Hmm. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, please just come home. And she apparently did. In that moment, she had clarity and a promise of forgiveness, of home, of welcome. And what I want to say is, God has left a photo of himself in the world. It's the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus. And attached to that photo, if I can continue the analogy, is a similar message. Peter, whatever you've done, Please just come home. There's a place for you. 
Christian faith offers not speculation, not prosperity, not a tyrant, but Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. If you have seen him, you have seen God. And what we see when we look at him is mercy, love, grace beyond our imagining. If you haven't, please come home. Come home. So Lord, will you please enable each one of us, wherever we find ourselves, in the journey of doubt or faith, please help each one of us to know ourselves, see ourselves clearly, understand our own motives, but way more importantly, help us to see you in the life of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we see in Jesus your grace. And how I pray for my friends in this room right now that each of us might have a fresh understanding, fresh experience of your welcome your forgiveness of that grace through Jesus Christ.